0: Uh, good morning, uh, Christ City Church. Good, uh, good to see everybody. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Matthew Watson. I serve as an elder and pastor of teaching and outreach here uh, at Christ City. Uh, really good to see uh, everybody. Um, listen, I've been away for the last two weeks, and it's good to be home. Uh, it w- I was with a small team from Christ City. We visited Paz Esperanza. Um, Paz is one of our inter- one of the international organizations that Christ City supports prayerfully and financially. Um, And it's one of the communities from the majority world that we are also learning from, particularly in the areas of community organizing and peacemaking and theological reflection. Uh, We had the chance to visit a number of their ministry projects that focused on human rights, particularly human rights for the disabled communities in Peru, uh, as well as their work around peacemaking and environmental justice in indigenous communities in the Peruvian mountains. Uh, it, was, it was a tremendous visit. I uh, shared with somebody coming in. They said I was visiting. I was like, it was, a, it was a short, long trip, if that makes any sense. It was short, but man, it was long. I think, you know, it was a five-day trip that felt longer than that. But, um, and we'll be sharing more via uh, the newsletter, the scoop, um, so be on the lookout uh, for that. So it was a tremendous uh, experience, and we're grateful for PAZ and the work that they're doing, not only in Peru, but throughout Latin America. And then got back and um, unpacked my suitcase and then repacked it. And then um, I, along with Pastor Justin, we spent time uh, in Chicago with V3. V3 is the church planting and church revitalization network that Christ City has been a part of and connected to over the years. Um, at this point in the life of Christ City, we're able to provide some coaching and mentoring and camaraderie for other churches that are just beginning. These are churches from across the U.S. and across the U.K., Uh, women and men who are leading amazing churches and providing an amazing image of Christ that are contextual, that are community-focused, and in the grassroots. Um, And it was inspiring uh, to be there. And frankly, for me, it was inspiring to tell the story of Christ City. We're like, yeah, we're 10 years old. Let us tell you how to do some things, you know, like as though we're sort of aged and wise. Um, But I am glad to be back home with you. Um, But uh, I tell you all this to remind you that— that all of us, while, you know, Christ City has always been primarily focused on um, kind of the D.C. area and the neighborhoods in which um, our small groups are and throughout kind of the wider DMV, it is helpful, I think, for all of us to remember that our work, that our story and this little experiment that we call Christ City Church, this multi-ethnic, multi-generational inclusive church in the heart of Washington, D.C., as it says on our website, that it has influence beyond this room. Has influenced beyond this neighborhood in this region. And I know that I can get a bit myopic here and only see kind of what's in front of me. Uh, but God is using us in ways that we can't imagine. And in ways that that I often forget, except when I gain some perspective that a few miles can provide. So, Christy, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of us. Good job. Um, I'm grateful for all that God is doing in us, all that God is doing through us, and I just want you to know that even as we're here, that there are churches and ministries today in Brighton, England, in Honolulu, Hawaii, in Newport Beach, Virginia, and Lima, Peru, and Moyabamba, that today are grateful for Christ City Church. Praise God. I'm glad to be home. <laughs> um, Let me make sure that I'm not causing more trouble for Lucas back there than I need to. I'm going to tighten the thing. I'm going to spin this right here. That's probably what it was. (laughs) I tightened the thing. I'm good. Sorry. It's tight. I'm ready. Over the... Uh, hey, I'm glad to be back. I'm a little tired. I'm not going to lie to you, man. Whatever you get today is by God's grace, so here we go. Um, over the past several weeks, um, we have been... I can hear it differently now. See, it was the, it was the bolt, nut, screw. I don't know. Um, over the past several weeks, we've been making our way through the Old Testament book. Goodness gracious, I am off to a fantastic start. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a, you know, it's a it's a mysterious and magical book. It's categorized as one of the, f- the five wisdom books that uh, we learned this a few weeks ago. But it bears repeating. The others being Proverbs and Job, Song of Solomon, Psalms, and in the New Testament. Um, oftentimes James gets categorized as a wisdom book as well. As Pastor Andrea noted in the opening sermon of this series, uh, the wisdom books Ecclesiastes included. Um, that deals with the ways that the world actually works. Typically, uh, the wisdom books use um, uh, proverbs and storytelling and poetry. Uh, The the wisdom books, they cover a wide range of, of human experiences and emotions and proposes possibilities of what it means to live wisely in the world before God. As one commentator puts it, the wisdom books explore the art of navigating the complexities of life and discerning God's ways and the immediacy of life. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we're invited to journey with the author of Ecclesiastes, who is referred to as the Kohelet in Hebrew, or the teacher. The journey that Ecclesiastes takes us on, it's, it's one that explores the meaning of life or the meaningless of life. The teacher begins Ecclesiastes with this cheery declaration in chapter 1. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utter meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Good morning. Welcome to Christ City. Here's your inspirational thought. What the teacher is wrestling with is this very real and very frustrating reality that the world can feel meaningless sometimes. It can seem like there's no rhyme or reason to life's flow. Evil men prosper, righteous ones are tortured, hard work is taken advantage of, laziness is rewarded. And it can feel like there's just endless toil, work never done. It says in Ecclesiastes 2, the rivers flow to the sea, yet the sea is never filled. The teacher is staring into the world and wondering why. My therapist has been helping me to say sometimes why is not the best question to ask, so I say, okay, how come? (laughs) So much of Ecclesiastes is, is wrestling with this pendulum swing of answers that says all is vapor on the one hand, and all of this is precious on the other. As we said a few weeks ago, we're holding two undeniable realities. It's holding that life is vapor, but also significant. It's holding our life with all of its chaos and suffering and hardships and randomness and lack of control with God's life. The one that doesn't have a beginning or an end because God has always been and will always be. It's holding Ecclesiastes 1 of all its meaningless with our series Anchor Verse, it comes in chapter 3, verse 14. I know that whatever God does endures. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. That God has done this so that we should stand in awe before Him. The search for meaning doesn't end, but that doesn't mean that we can't find any meaning. The aim of this series, which is the aim of the book is to face the world in all of its beauty and in all of its brokenness, knowing that God holds it all, even the parts that we can't make sense of. Um, I went to seminary. Uh, Seminary is the graduate school that preachers go to. So uh, I went to seminary in Marin County, California, just outside of San Francisco. My neighbor next to me, uh, he was uh, a brother named Jiwon. Jiwon was um, a Korean brother. uh, grown up in Seoul, he come from a business background, business uh, family uh, before um, pursuing a path of uh, pastoring. Uh, I loved Jiwan. He was an amazing friend. Um, I hate that I've lost touch with him over the years, but during that season of life, uh, Jiwan was very close to me. Prayed with me, um, taught me Korean words like anaseo, which means hello. He also taught me Pangogesa. And chugule, which means who farted and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I don't remember which is which. You can tell me later. Um, we studied together. We prayed together. Um, we kept our doors open, just kind of walked by. Kind of It's like, almost like bedrooms. So we just walk in, sit down, see what's going on, see how each other's doing. One day I remember walking past his, his room and I could just see him. We stared out uh, out our windows the way that our dorm faced. We could see the coastal mountain range and Mount Tamalpais that... Rose up above it, and I could see his shoulders were shaking. I just stepped in and said, "Gee, why are you good?" And he was just crying. He was crying quiet tears. And I just sat down next to him, and I'm like, "Yo, what's, what's up, my man?" His brother had passed away. He just got the news. His brother lived in Indonesia. Indonesia has the third highest number of motorcycles on the planet. I said, my brother died. It was a motorcycle accident. I remember just holding his arm as he shook, putting my arm around his shoulders. And we just sat there for a long while. I remember kissing his head. I didn't know what to say. And then I remember him, the only thing that he said after telling me what happened the only thing that he said is that there's just too many motorcycles. That was it. There's too many motorcycles. That's all I remember him saying. There were, there were no cries of why. There were no, you know, where are you, gods. There was no pastoral or theological statements that he made about God's providence or care or God's will in that moment. There wasn't even much of a consolation in what he said, but I remember even in that moment thinking that there was a sober wisdom in what he said. That it was a somber response, but it was true because sometimes there's just too many motorcycles on the road. There was an Ecclesiastes wisdom in his words, wisdom born of tragedy and pain and emptiness and holiness all mixed together. Wisdom that says sometimes the only sense the world makes is that the world makes no sense. In chapter 7, the teacher begins to press against this wisdom. He's attempting to explore the strengths and the limits of wisdom. Wisdom is, uh, by the way, it's different from like learning or intellect, though it might include some of that. The Jewish scholar Michael Fox notes, wisdom is the ability to take the long view of life to judge things by a moral and practical criteria. Wisdom helps discern the best ends as well as the best means. For wisdom isn't not only knowing what to do, but actually doing it. Wisdom includes the craftsman's skill, the statesman's savvy, the merchant's know-how, and the sly one's wile. Wisdom is how we soberly navigate a world in a way that allows us to embrace beauty while surrounded by brokenness. It's how we navigate a world that allows us to embrace beauty while surrounded by brokenness. I thought about continuing uh, this part of the sermon with a bunch of more quotes from sages and rabbis and mystics and preachers but, and figure out what they had to say about wisdom. But instead, here's what I want you to do. I want to ask you this question. Who's the wisest person you know? I don't mean like, like ever, like don't tell me Cicero or like some random. Like somebody in your life who's the wisest person that you know or that you would identify as wise. Thinking about them, maybe more than one person. Hold them in your mind. You got them? I just want you to whisper their name or their names for a minute. Who is it? Why is this person you know? For me, it'd be a few. It'd be Odie Dean, Emma Dean. Dr. Randy White. What made them wise in your eyes? Let me ask you. Why would you say that they are one who is wise? Perhaps some mix of life and experience and learning and sorrow? What was present in their lives? Hope, joy, calm, ability to see and know. What was absent from their lives? Bitterness, worry, fear. I don't need to quote the ancients. I suspect you know what wisdom looks like when you see it and when you experience it. Those that we come across, that we identify as wise, those in our lives, they show us how to navigate a world in a way that allows us to embrace beauty while surrounded by brokenness. In Ecclesiastes 7, the teacher presents a series of proverbs, uh, a series of opposing life experiences, revealing what prison minister and author T.M. Moore calls the heart of wisdom and exposing the foolishness of trying to make sense of life apart from God. Ecclesiastes 7, it begins this way, a good name is better than fine perfume. It begins in a manner similar to what we might find in the book of Proverbs. It begins with juxtaposing sort of dissimilar things, a good name on the one hand, and fine perfume or fine oil, as it says in some translations, uh, on the other. Fine oil, and fine perfume, it was an expensive commodity. It was uh, that which was worn to suggest wealth and status of the wearer. It was a superficial adornment, and the teacher lays this alongside a good name. A name carries purpose and and meaning. The teacher isn't simply sort of talking about like, you know, what you call a person, but a much deeper name that's referring to their reputation, how they are known over time, over a lifetime. The part of you that lingers longer than the fragrance of an oil. But then the teacher takes his hard, like, jolting turn. And we're like, Whoa, bro, what happened? What started so good? It's a series of paradoxes that rise before us like a more raw version of the Sermon on the Mount. Good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death better than the day of birth. Anybody else like, what? You know. It's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. On on, on one side of the equation, the the teacher's like he's placing death and mourning and frustration, and on the other side, he's placing birth and feasts and laughter. Now, if it's just me, I know which side of that equation I want to live in and occupy. And so I'm like, yo, teacher, like what's the what here? As one uh, commentator considered, what the teacher seems to be considering is this that the day you die is better, for at the end of it all, there's something that you can be remembered by. Your name, your reputation. While at your birth, there's nothing more than high parental hopes. It's not untrue, even if it's cynical. It's what you do in between those points that matters. It's as though what the teacher is wanting to do is is to warn us to be aware of the one who's always making jokes and whose heart is set on laughter. Someone like this will never share your sorrows with you. There's this sense in these cascading proverbs of disorientation that making space for sadness and mourning and grief, according to the teacher, is actually what is needed for wisdom to take hold of it. It's wisdom in the midst of what can feel like a sorry world that actually allows us to embrace the world as it is, beauty and blisters and all. Uh, In this week's Time Magazine I don't know why they still call it Time Magazine, because I didn't actually grab the magazine. It was an app on my phone in the Apple News section, but I don't know how else to cite it, so I'm going to call it this week's Time Magazine. I came across an article uh, about millionaire Brian Johnson. Johnson's made his fortune in the tech industry, but for the last several years, he set out to find the secret of anti-aging. He believes he can beat death. The article opens, Johnson, 46, is a centimillionaire. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds like you've got a lot of dough. (laughs) tech entrepreneur who spent most of the last three years in pursuit of a singular goal, don't die. During that time, he spent more than $4 million developing a life extension system called Blueprint, in which he outsources every decision involving his body to a team of doctors who used data to develop strict health a uh, strict health regimen to reduce what Johnson calls his biological age that system includes downing 111 pills every day wearing a small baseball cap that shoots red lights onto his scalp collecting his own stool samples eating smoothies injecting himself with blood from his young adult son and dozens of other actions aimed at ensuring that he beats death Johnson thinks that any act that accelerates aging like eating a cookie or getting less than eight hours of sleep as an act of violence. According to Johnson, he's trying to reframe what it means to be human. Throughout the article, as the author's writing, she can't help but insert her own thoughts into it, which I found beautiful. <laughs> she writes, whether the next evolution of human being would it have any real humanity at all? If living like Johnson meant you could live forever, would it even be worth it? Johnson acknowledges that to move through this grand experiment has meant that he's had to cut himself off from certain relationships and feelings and emotions, and even his own understanding of what it means to be human. Johnson says, we are willing to divorce ourselves from all human custom, everything all philosophy, all ethics, all morals, and all happiness. When I was reading about Johnson's experiment, it struck me so consistent with the teacher's experiments in Ecclesiastes, a desire to understand life, and in Johnson's case, a brutish form of eternal life that seeks to bury its emotional head in the sand and cut itself off from the world in a technologically manufactured way, a way to... Shut one's eyes and close one's ears to the world and fabricate a longer life that turns out to be an ignorant half-life, failing to realize the folly of it all, for ignorance and isolation is a weak fortress against the sorrows of the world. Johnson isn't vanquishing death from his life, he's vanquishing wisdom. Ecclesiastes, it can read like dark proverbs, Yet what the teacher seems to be inviting us into is a life where we learn to feel the pain of others and to experience the death of others and to discern through the grief. The teacher is indicating that wisdom arrives when we're able to learn to care, to be present with those in pain. And foolishness is only able to live in the land of merriment and fantasy with little to offer the very real world in which we live. We see this attention to the present moment as an invitation and avenue for care throughout chapter 7. Over and again, the teacher is inviting the reader to enter into the present moment with eyes wide open in order to be of some good use to the moment and those that are in it with you. It echoes Hamlet's famous speech, to be or not to be, that's the question, to die, to sleep, no more, and by sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. The teacher like Hamlet is wondering, and like Johnson is wondering, what is life's meaning and what is it that makes a meaningful life, especially when surrounded by the certainty of death? What the teacher is battling isn't just death, but meaningless, which can be more stifling than tragedy. Tragedy. And what author Derek Kinder notes, the shrug, which is the most hopeless of all comments on life. Ecclesiastes 7, and all of Ecclesiastes really, it's wisdom's invitation. It's God's invitation to know when to weep and to know when to dance and to know that sometimes we dance with tears in our eyes because that is wisdom in the midst of life. The teacher concludes this section on wisdom and on living in Ecclesiastes 8. begins in verse 1. He says, Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. It is the wisdom that emerges in the midst of heartache that gives us the ability to embrace the heartache. It's wisdom knowing what's to do in the face of tragedy that says tragedies don't overcome us. The definition of wisdom that I began with was wisdom is how we soberly navigate a world in a way that allows us to embrace beauty while surrounded by brokenness. Wisdom is God's gift that allows us to face life's sorrow and brokenness, yet also see the beauty and make beauty all around. Now, this might surprise some of you, seeing my pale skin and red turning white beard, but my family is Chickasaw Indian. Surprise, I know. It's on my mom's side. She's over here. You can ask her. Um, I got a picture. of my great-grandmother, uh, Emma Dean. I'll show you her. She was a proud and beautiful Chickasaw woman. She was an amazing painter, a lifelong educator. She was a college athlete. Um, our family, our ancestors, originally were located in Mississippi and along the Mississippi River in the 1830s. They walked the Trail of Tears and ended up in Oklahoma. And after making that mark, uh, the United States government gave us a little piece of land in southern Oklahoma handful of acres. Our family still holds it. Um, Over the years, I've come to understand my family's history and even my own sort of location in it. I remember asking my grandmother why none of us spoke Chickasaw anymore. I remember her telling me uh, with sadness, she said, listen, her her mom didn't teach her. In her words, she said, sweetheart, it's a white man's world now. You won't need that anymore. Our family's the poorer for it. Um, I would later learn that my great-grandmother, she was actually not raised by her mother, but she was raised by her aunts. Um, Her father was white, and my great-great aunts took Emma from her mother because, according to them, Indian women didn't know how to raise children. When I was in college, I was kind of going through a process of understanding my identity, what it meant to be white, what it meant to be uh, Chickasaw, and I remember uh, going to my grandmother and uh, it was ahead of our family reunion. We had our family reunion um, every year, more or less, uh, on on the (laughs) allotment land that the government gave us. Uh, And so we'd come together every year. And we would have our family reunion, unironically, on the 4th of July. And I remember asking my grandmother, I was like, Grandma, why do we have our family reunion, you know, under the Chickasaw flag on the birthday of the oppressor? And she just looked at me. I said, well, honey, everybody got that day off of work. <laughs> it was wisdom. It was wisdom. So, what we're trying to do is embrace the beauty, even surrounded by the brokenness of it all. That's the invitation that Ecclesiastes is extending to us in chapter 7. It's helping us know how to navigate the world in a way that allows us to embrace the joy and happiness and celebration all around. Even when it feels like there's so much evidence to the contrary. That's the teacher's invitation to us. And that's God's invitation to us even this morning. Let me pray for us.